0: This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, and you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. I apologize that it has been so long since I have released a podcast episode, and I especially feel a little bit bad because I was in the middle of a series. So let me give you a little bit of the backstory. It's taken on a life of its own, I feel like. So I was doing the podcast series on developing a solid sense of self. And in my mind, this podcast episode that I am recording now, was going to be the last episode in this series, or so I thought. And it was going to be kind of the, maybe the how-to Like, what is a solid sense of self, and how do we get there? How do we develop that solid sense of self? And so, while I was recording and outlining the other episodes that came previously in this series, I was also reading different things and working on this particular episode. And I just got stuck going down rabbit holes, I would say. I looked, and the last podcast episode I released in this series was released the week of Halloween and here we are, January 2nd, I'm recording this, and there's been this big gap between those other podcast episodes being released and this one. Now initially, like I said, I just was going down rabbit holes, and reading this book led me to reading this article, which led me to this, you know, podcast series, or different, just different things that I was reading that would take me in different areas, and I had a Word doc that I was dumping my thoughts into or copying quotes and pasting them into my Word doc. And I kept seeing the, you know, the size of the Word doc getting larger and larger. And I would say to myself, like, okay, this is just a podcast episode. Like, you certainly do not need 30 pages of a Word doc for a podcast episode. That's going to last forever. And I would just think, okay, that's fine, but I, I want to keep reading. It was like, I was following something and I just kept going. I couldn't like stop myself from continuing to read different things. And I found it very fascinating and very interesting. I would also think to myself, how are you going to, you know, organize and put together a summary of everything you're reading? Like that seems a little bit hard too, as my Google doc kept getting bigger and then you know, one week I thought, okay, I'm today I'm going to organize it and try to get a coherent outline and episode put together, somewhat, you know, shave off what I don't need that's in my Google Doc, and then the next week I can record a podcast episode. And so that was my intention. I sat down and started organizing it, and then there were things that I was like, oh right, I I need to look this up again where I read it, what it was saying. And then I would go back to my source, start reading it, start looking, and again, go to a different source. And so it was just this process where, you know, I was aware in my head, like, okay, weeks are ticking by. You've got to release this podcast episode. You're stuck in, you know, searching. You could even just release a podcast episode while you keep searching, while you keep reading, while you keep learning more about this. You could just release a podcast episode based on what you have and maybe it's not the last episode and that's fine and then i would sit down and think okay today i'm going to organize this into one podcast episode and i'll keep looking for stuff in the meantime and reading stuff and organizing other stuff but i'm going to release a episode and you know eight o'clock at night comes and I'm like, I'm not recording a podcast episode tonight. I've spent the whole day, you know, kind of organizing my outline and putting it together. And it's eight o'clock at night. And I'm like, okay, next week, I'll do it next week. So that was happening for gosh, a good, maybe month to six weeks. And then I did actually sit down and I recorded a podcast episode, not like Like what I was thinking, I'll do one episode and then I'll do another one while I continue to read. But I recorded one podcast episode and it was lengthy. It was long. I just decided I'm just going to do it all in one sitting and in one episode. So I recorded a podcast episode and sent it off to my office manager who produces the podcast. And she got back to me and was like, hey, bad news. There's still some sounds. There's still some, it's a different sound than what it has been before. But there's still a sound and I don't know that you're going to want the sound here. And, you know, she was trying to get her to see if she could um, eliminate it or at least fade it a little bit. And I was like, that's fine. I'll re-record it. Not a problem. I mean, it was lengthy, but I was like, it's fine. I can re-record it. And so I was going to record, it. you know, this one Monday. I didn't have anything scheduled and I thought, okay, I've pretty much organized it. All I need to do is record it. I can certainly get that done today. And then one of my daughters showed up at my house. I didn't hear her come in. I mean, she had texted me in the morning and asked if I was gonna be around today and if I was working from home, which I typically do on Mondays. And so I just said, yeah, I'm gonna be here and just working on my podcast. And so I didn't hear her come in. She came in and when I saw her, she just started crying. And, you know, I went over to her and just held her. I had no idea what was really going on, just held her. You know, it that took up a lot of the rest of my day. And I thought to myself, I'm not going to get the podcast recorded today. But I did actually um, later that night. She went out with her sisters and a friend and I was like, OK, I'm going to go record this podcast episode. And my husband was like, OK, I said probably an hour and a half, 90 minutes, I think, is how long it's going to take me. And, you know, at 11 o'clock at night, I wrap up and it's been three hours that I've been recording and, you know, kind of come into bed. And he was still asleep, but heard me coming in and was like, that wasn't an hour and a half. And I was like, yeah, no, I I guess I have a lot of information still, even after cutting it down and organizing it. I guess I was optimistic and thinking it would be an hour and a half. And then, you know, the uh, situation with my daughter is taken up. A lot of, I would say it's taken up a lot of space and energy for the month of December. In the background, again, there were still some uh, recording issues. We started looking at different podcast recording software, thinking it might be a software issue. And so I found one recorded. Oh, it didn't let me record more than 30 minutes at a time. And I didn't want to do that. And then I found another one that looked pretty good, had pretty good reviews, And so i thought okay i'm gonna you know do this one so kind of recorded some test i wasn't gonna do a whole episode not knowing how it would work and you know did a couple of comparisons between different softwares and asking my office manager like which one do you think sounds best so we narrowed it in and i recorded one and that one had an issue too so this is i think maybe my fourth recording of this podcast episode so it's been a combination of you know, things in my head getting stuck in my head and researching, reading, and not really being able to pull myself out of that space. You know, I would say to myself, like, Jackie, you're not writing a thesis. This is a podcast episode. Just get a podcast episode out. And then I'd keep reading and researching. And then I would think to myself, maybe this should be a thesis. And what the heck am I thinking, making it into a podcast episode? Like, What was I even thinking that I could do a series on developing a solid sense of self, which is a pretty complex process. What was I even thinking tackling that as a podcast series? And then I'd kind of be like, okay, you've got to get out of your head, you've started it, you've got to finish it, just keep going. So part of it was me getting, uh, you know, just pulled down different rabbit holes and reading and reading and thinking like, okay, once I..." finish this then I can put it together and record and then that just wasn't happening. Then I would get in my head like what are you even doing? Then there were some you know family issues that came up and just took up a lot more energy and space than we are used to. That's not necessarily how we live. We don't live with a lot of chaos or drama maybe and so that took up a lot of space and energy and then You know, in the between, I'm trying to record. I'm trying to get things out there. And, you know, finally, I think it was the week of Christmas and when we knew the last recording that I had done didn't work. And I just said to my office manager, like, let's just take a break. Enjoy the holidays. We'll come back at it in the new year. And hopefully that works out and everything is well with the new recording. So here I am. And like I said, I never meant to take this long of a break, especially in the middle of a series and I apologize about that, and here we go. So this episode, again, I still think this is kind of the last episode in this series, although I imagine, once I release this podcast episode, there may be parts for listeners where they're they're hearing a certain part, and maybe you wanna hear more about that, or you would like to hear a whole episode around a certain thing that I touch on. And I'm always open to getting feedback to having listeners send me questions, send me topics that they would like more understanding about. And so, you know, if that happens, feel free to contact me and just kind of let me know like, hey, I'd like to hear more about this or could you further develop this idea? Because again, I took a good six weeks kind of developing the ideas that I had for this podcast episode. Well, a little more than six weeks because I was also prepping it before, it was time for that episode to be recorded. And so there's some stuff that, you know, I went pretty deep on it and cut some of that out in order to just kind of put it more coherently together as a podcast episode. So again, whether it's with this episode or a different episode, if you want to hear more, you know, a a podcast around something that I touch on, or you'd like to hear a topic that maybe I haven't covered yet, or anyway, I have a list of Uh, podcast topics that I'm compiling, that I have been compiling for podcast topics that I want to get into in 2023. But if you'd like to add to that list, if you have a question that I haven't covered yet, which I'm sure there's a lot of things that I haven't covered yet because my list for 2023 topics is, I think it's a good list and I don't think I've really covered them or I've touched on them, but I would like to go a little bit deeper into them. Again, always happy to hear feedback from listeners, topic suggestions, questions that you have. You know, I I haven't really done a podcast episode where I'm just like opening it up for questions. And if you have questions, you know, we'll do an episode answering listener questions. So that's something I'm also thinking about in 2023, you know, maybe quarterly doing a listener questions episode. So anyway, feel free to contact me. Uh, Probably the best email to contact me for podcast topics or podcast questions is at my email, jackie, J-A-C-K-I-E, at jackiepack, P-A-C-K, dot com. So that's the best one that you can um, contact me with for podcast questions, topics, suggestions, whatever. I'm happy to hear from listeners. So, okay, let's get into this episode on how do we develop this solid sense of self. And I want to start out by acknowledging But I think figuring out who we are and where we belong are two of the hardest questions to answer. And many people never figure this out or even begin to ask themselves the questions of who am I and where do I belong? Now, I've never lived in a different time period, obviously, but I I wonder too if, you know, here we are in 2023, finishing up 2022, but I wonder if, in my lifetime, those questions, you know, the maybe the privilege of our life in America or just the life in where we live might lead us to, you know, being able to ponder those ideas more so than some of our ancestors who were just, you know, struggling to provide food and shelter for their families, different things like that that you know, maybe in our day and age where, yeah, sure, we're working, but it may not be as consuming as some of our ancestors. If, if these questions are more ones that we can ponder or that we can think about, I think the answers to those two questions are also things that we struggle with the most and that without finding answers, we are not going to be fully filled and I don't think we're going to be fully satisfied. I talked before on a previous podcast episode about one of my uh, college professors, my first semester at college. His name was Mr. Natsky, And, you know, he became, I took him for English. And I, you know, I took most of his classes that he taught. He also taught language classes, German language classes. And I'm not very good at learning languages. That's something I would love to do. But it just was not something at the time, you know, I had taken Spanish in junior high and high school. And my Spanish, I didn't really pick up the language very much. And so I thought, I'm not going to learn German. So I took all of the classes that he taught at the college I was at, minus the German classes. So English, I think I took critical writing classes. I think I took some poetry classes, different classes that he um, taught. And, you know, he but he also became, I would say he became maybe a mentor, not necessarily professionally. I've had professional mentors, but more a mentor as I'm transitioning into this young adult life, figuring out who I am. You know, I think they're vulnerable ages, 18, 19, 20. I think he became more of a mentor in that way. And so often I would go to his office and we would talk about other classes I was taking, other things I was writing or learning. And, you know, he was one of the types of people who, I mean, he was brilliant. He had been some type of scholar where he went and studied at a university for a couple of years. I just can't think of that word. It'll come to me later. And so he was a very brilliant person, but also one who was very patient with somebody who was kind of new to the world, new to, I would say, figuring out who I was. And so he wasn't the type of person who would just tell me things or lecture But he actually, you know, sometimes he would give me, in addition to things that I was reading or learning about, he would give me an essay and, you know, say, hey, why why don't you read this and then come back and we'll discuss the ideas in it. And so he was just somebody that I would talk things over with. But he also had a way of getting me to think and start to articulate what I was thinking, not just that he would tell me what to think or what he thought. But he actually would, you know, ask me questions and try to get me to develop my own thoughts around that. So I would say he was a mentor in that way, probably also somewhat of a father figure. And one of the times when I was talking to him in his office, he said to me, you know, I think the most important questions you can answer are, who are you and what price are you willing to pay to be that? And I thought about that those two questions a lot over the years. I've mentioned before he passed away when I was in my master's program. Um, I got a note from his wife letting me know that he had passed away. But his influence on me lasted much longer than just the time period that I knew him and spent time talking about things in his office. And so again, I just want to start out acknowledging, I think these are hard questions to answer. I also think they're rewarding questions to struggle with. And I think they can bring us a lot of satisfaction, even if we're never arriving at a answer that ends. I think sometimes the answer is also in process that once we have the solid sense of self, that's not the end that continues to evolve and develop with us throughout our lifetime. Now, I will also say that our understanding about the functioning of our nervous systems and our brains is still limited. We don't fully understand how energy and information are exchanged between people within relationships. We don't fully understand how memory is stored and reconstituted within our mind-body systems. Neuroscientists are still trying to understand the puzzle of consciousness, what consciousness is, where it resides, and who we are. Spiritual traditions have been asking these same questions for millennia. And I will say our tools for studying the brain and nervous system have come a long way in the past 30 years. And they're still maybe primitive. You know, in 30 years, we may look back and see how far we had come at this point in time and know that, you know, where we were still able to go would take us far beyond what we have today. I think like with a lot of things in life, we may never have all the answers. And also perhaps we don't need all of them. Alan Shore tells us, quote, the brain is a self-organizing system, which during early development, organizes itself through interactions with the primary caregiver, end quote. Dan Siegel tells us that neural integration within a developing child occurs through the co-construction of the child's autobiographical narrative. This co-construction usually occurs over time within the parent-child dyad, and it begins at about age two. From about age two onward, usually with the help of our parents and other people who know our stories, children will construct their autobiographical narratives, leading to what is called auto-noetic consciousness, which is the ability to perceive the continuity of their identities from the past to the present and even into the future. So again, auto-noetic consciousness is the capacity to be aware of one's own existence as an entity in time and at different times. So I might look at myself as a young child and then see myself as a teen, as a young adult, you know, midlife in my 50s, and kind of see myself both at that time period and also then evolving to the next time period and have that awareness of myself as an individual, right? Or as an entity through different time periods and then even predict some things into my future. Now, as human beings, we know that our nervous systems organize around storylines or around our individual life narratives. So this autobiographical narrative that develops is pretty important because our nervous system will organize around those storylines or those individual life narratives. Now, in our minds, who we believe ourselves to be includes our nationality, race, gender, skin color, religious preferences, what we do for work, and who we believe ourselves to be also includes attributes, both positive and negative, which have been assigned to us by our parents, maybe our siblings, teachers, the culture we come from, and the environment that we live in or have lived in. And through the process of introjection, we incorporate into ourselves at a young age ideas which others have about us, so who they think we are or who they think we should be, And there comes a time when we're going to have to sort through our lives, what we've been told about ourselves and restructure ourself into a more congruent and coherent being. Now, we humans, perhaps uniquely have the ability to view ourselves in past time and to project ourselves into future time. And we define ourselves through our life narratives, both the things that we remember, and also things that we're not necessarily remembering. We know that our memories are fluid and are reconstructed each time we remember a memory. Since we organize ourselves around our storylines, this fluidity allows us to continually integrate new information into our self systems. Now, decades ago, there was a study that was started called the Grant Study. And the study, it started in 1938 and it was focused on all men because of course, but it was focused on researching a man's ability to adapt to life. And it's known as the grant study because it was funded by the late William T. Grant, who was a philanthropist. And the subjects or the participants were outstanding graduates of the classes of 1942, 1943, and 1944 at what at the time was known as a highly competitive college. It was never identified in the study, but since it's been more widely talked about and published, there's a book that describes the study's findings. We know that it's unmistakably the highly competitive college is Harvard. So like I said, there was a book um, release that describes the study's findings. The book's entitled Adaptation to Life, and it's written by Dr. George E. Valiant, who's a 43-year-old psychiatrist who directed the grant study for the last 10 years. Now, it started out with, I think, I believe it was like 238 participants, and over time, it followed through decades of time periods, 95 subjects or 95 participants. Now, according to Dr. Valiant, who teaches at the Harvard Medical School, he says the 95 participants have since their college days become best-selling novelists, cabinet members, scholars, and captains of industry, physicians, and teachers of the first rank, judges and newspaper editors. One of the things that they found in this study, again, if we're thinking it's a highly competitive college, and then if we have the understanding that this is Harvard, we might think that, you know, the participants that he was studying all came from privileged backgrounds, high socioeconomic status, families. But what he also found was that a man's social class had no effect in determining his outcome in life. He said, if there was any advantage to the social class that was correlated with their ability to be successful, he said their social class was actually correlated with absolutely nothing, and by the age of 50 years old, any advantage that we may have perceived coming from their social status as you know, young adults entering college had completely washed out. The Grant men, they're now much older, right? He wrote about how 80% were Protestant, 10% Roman Catholic, and 10% Jewish. All of them were white because again, of course, and 89% came from north of the Mason-Dixon line, east of Missouri. He also said about one-third came from blue-collar homes. Now the men were interviewed and tested for 20 hours during their college years, and interviews were also conducted with their families. After graduation, Each man filled out a questionnaire every year until 1955, and then every two years after that. Personal interviews were conducted with the men during 1950, 1952, and in 1967, Dr. Valiant himself visited with the 95 men that he had randomly selected to study from the total of 268, I'd said 238, it's 268, who had begun the project. Now, according to this study, there were four predictions that could be made about the effect of childhood upon midlife adjustment. So he found that men with unhappy childhoods, if they did not adapt, would be unable to play, they would be dependent, and they would lack trust in the universe. They were more likely to be labeled with mental health issues, and they would struggle to develop friendships. Now, he wrote about how the ability to play is a good indicator of successful adjustment and it was shown that when a man was able to play competitive games like tennis with friends and take long and imaginative vacations from work, that was a predictor of adapting and being able to do well despite childhood difficulties. Discussing the subject's mental problems, Dr. Valiant writes that many grant men recovered from seemingly intractable character disorder causing him to conclude that recovery from mental illness is analogous to passing from adolescence to adulthood. He wrote, the person is the same, no lesson has been learned, no tumor has been excised, but different defenses have been deployed. He wrote that by devising new means of coping, the afflicted individuals proved over the years to be able to cure themselves. The study devoted a lot of attention to what he called ego mechanisms of defense, which Dr. Valiant compared to the means by which an oyster confronted with a grain of sand creates a pearl. Among these styles of adaptation in the names that have been given them by psychiatrists are projection, repression, sublimation, displacement, and altruism. So the men considered by Dr. Valiant to be the best outcomes tended to give generously to charities, became more active in competitive sports than they had been in college, and chose a career that reflected identification with their fathers. The worst outcomes, on the other hand, tended to have bleak friendship patterns at age 50, jobs with little supervisory responsibility, and were marked by pessimism, self-doubt, passivity, and fear of sex at the age of 50. Now, one of the things Valiant found was that if the men from troubled backgrounds could be open, if they could listen to feedback and adapt, their defense mechanisms lessened over time and their attachment to their partner and others deepened. He wrote, quote, what makes or breaks our luck seems to be the continued interaction between our choice of adaptive mechanisms and our sustained relationships with other people. No whim of fate, no Freudian trauma, no loss of a loved one will be as devastating to the human spirit as some prolonged ambivalent relationship that leaves us forever unable to say goodbye." End quote. Now we know from attachment research that securely attached individuals have coherent life narratives. They're better able to self-regulate. And in turn, they raise their children to become securely attached adults. Now I wanna say, again, I'm one of the topics that I want on my 2023 podcast topic list is to do a little bit deeper. I think I've talked before in the podcast about attachment, but I want to go a little bit deeper. So that'll be one of the things that I'm tackling in 2023 on the podcast. And I want to say, I just don't know, you know, when we're talking about like attachment and I'm going to talk a little bit more about this later in this podcast episode, but I don't think we can look at it in terms of 100 percent or zero percent. When we start looking at it in a binary, I think we miss the complexity of human beings. So when I'm talking about, you know, securely attached individuals have the tendency to raise children who become securely attached adults. Again, I will say we're not talking about 100%. We're talking securely enough attached adults. Now we also know from attachment research that one's attachment style tends to be consistent over their lifetime. So if your attachment style is not secure, The research shows two things that can be beneficial to your healing and your health over your lifetime. And both have to do with finding healthy systems that can serve as a surrogate family and allow for growth and development and change. So one of those two ways is you can find a partner to be in a relationship with that has a healthier attachment style than you do. Now, it's important to to indicate here that The partner can't be trying to rescue you or change you or force you to be the person that they want you to be or they they see you can be, but simply that they see your potential and they connect with you in a secure way. So that's one way of adapting that attachment style for your benefit over your lifetime. The second we know is to become part of a healthy work system. You know, you might find a boss who sees your potential and mentors that or encourages that and helps you to develop and see that for yourself. So, again, it can either be relationship wise in a relationship system or it can be in a work system. Again, where relationships are also a part of your healthy work environment and that your development is important to the people above you. And as you rise through the ranks, the development of those under you also becomes important to you. That's one of the signs of a healthy work culture. Okay, so let's pivot away from the grant study for a minute and talk about trauma and abuse. When we're talking about any type of trauma and abuse, which is a type of trauma, I usually begin talking about the body. Now the mind can have its own perspective and we know that our body or our nervous system may not match the perspective of our mind. Our mind might be like, oh, it was fine. wasn't that bad. Or our mind might say things like, wow, that could have been much worse. Where, yes, I will say many things could be much worse and are still indeed quite bad as they are or as they were. So if I'm sitting with someone, like a client, and they're talking about an experience that they had where maybe someone in authority use their vulnerability in a weaponized way to make them feel that they had to do something this other wanted them to do. They didn't have a choice. They couldn't really choose for themselves. I'll typically start by asking them, how did this make you feel? Or how are you feeling right now as you're talking about this experience? And one of the things I'm wondering to myself is how I feel in my body, listening to them, tell me this story. And as they're trying to find the words to tell me how they feel in their body about this story. In my work and how I approach the work that I do, I don't think we can really say, okay, here's your body and then here's your mind. And then yes, we acknowledge there's a soul or a spirit or a heart. That's kind of the words that it gets described as, as if we're created in this disconnected, disoriented way. I think human beings are integrated, holistic people, or at least that's how we're designed to be, is integrated, holistic people. Now, I think we can become disintegrated, but that's not our optimal design. So again, let me talk a little bit about integrity. So, or not integrity, I'm going to talk about that in just a minute, but let me talk for a minute about integrated, because this comes up a lot in the literature, in the neuroscience literature. There's a lot of discussion lot of the things I was reading that talked about integration and so integration if you look up the dictionary definition it's going to say something like to combine or to bring different parts into a whole and to integrate them right so that the the parts are combined into a whole now again like I said we as human beings optimally are integrated holistic people and Based on life experiences, we can also become disintegrated, or in the addiction language, we would use the word compartmentalized, where different parts are put in different compartments. So, you know, for example, sometimes as a child, we may experience things that were overwhelming for our nervous system, overwhelming for even our mind to comprehend and process through. And so we compartmentalized it or we disintegrated it right? in a way of the details of what happened when in one compartment, how I felt in my body goes in a different compartment, how the people in my life responded to what happened when in a different compartment. And just the details of all of that can be put in different compartments so that the individual is able to function or to keep moving forward, right, to survive, basically. But that's surviving in a disconnected, disoriented, disintegrated way. Again, it does help us survive, but I don't think that's how we're optimally designed. Now, I remember years ago, I couldn't tell you if I was reading it or listening to something, a book or a podcast or something, and hearing it discussed. I couldn't even tell you what it was that I was listening to, but they were talking about the term integrity. And they were using the example of an airplane, which initially I thought, well, that's interesting because usually when I have heard the word integrity, it's usually used in maybe like moral or even religious contexts, talking about the integrity of a person. Which, I mean, if you look up the definition of integrity, it is like to act from a place of value or moral principles. But they were talking about an airplane and I thought, well, that's interesting. I've never thought about an airplane having integrity like people, like an airplane is an object, right? And so I was intrigued when they were using this example and they were talking about how, you know, before an airplane is ever cleared to transport passengers and to have passengers fly on an airplane, the airplane is tested for its integrity. So it's put through some rigorous testing, high winds lightning, turbulence, different things like that so that they know the integrity of this airplane before you know they let passengers on board because otherwise, you know, airlines would probably bankrupt themselves if they did not test the integrity of an airplane. So again, when we look at airplanes having integrity, that makes sense that they're able to hold together despite challenging circumstances or rigorous circumstances the plane is able to hold together because it's been tested and it held together, or it was undiminished. Now, you know, when I thought about this at the time, I was thinking about kids, right? And kids who experience attachment trauma or trauma, right? They're given a test, like that would be like testing the airplane before all the screws were adequately put in place and everything, I don't know exactly what goes into the making of an airplane, but before it had properly been put together, it was tested. Obviously it wouldn't hold together. Obviously it wouldn't be undiminished. And I think that's similar to children. Children, you know, human, infants, toddlers, children, take a very long time to mature and to fully develop. And there's a lot of life experiences that can happen before they're properly formed. And so, you know, when we go back to that term integrity, you know, the definition is adherence to moral or ethical principles, having soundness of moral character, honesty, right? That usually only comes from a state of being whole or entire or undiminished. It's a place of being integrated, which again, I made me start thinking about how that word integrity could easily become weaponized because we're failing to understand that when somebody acts from a place of unethical principles or not immoral principles, that may be coming because they're disintegrated, because they had to break apart in order to survive because of the challenges or the life experiences that happened to them. Now, I think the number one thing that has become so helpful to me when I'm talking about things like trauma or abuse or really any type of harm is looking at what is called the window of tolerance. Now this phrase window of tolerance was coined by Dr. Dan Siegel and I find it really helpful and I utilize it a lot in helping clients understand what's happening in their body and how to start paying attention to what is happening in our body. Most of my clients I would say are not connected to their body. And so we're talking about it in terms of of how we start paying attention, how we start connecting to our body. I've talked about it with my kids too. You know, several of my kids have gone to therapy and I'll usually ask them, like, is your therapist talk to you about window of tolerance? And, you know, they'll say, yeah, they did talk to me about window of tolerance. And I'm always like, yeah, good. Like, like, let's have a discussion about it. Tell me what you know about it. And I just find that it's a Really helpful concept. I think it puts maybe some abstract ideas into a concrete way of thinking and talking about it and relating to our bodies that way. So, when we're in our window, it's really when our whole brain, body, and I would even say our spirit is able to interact. We're integrated. And I think that really is the place from which we interface with the wisdom of our bodies as well as interfacing with our spiritual wisdom. For some people, that may be their faith or religious beliefs. It could also be cultural. You know, sometimes we talk about the wisdom of the ages or the wisdom of the ancestors. I think we're also interfacing with our mind, our thoughts, our beliefs, how we see ourselves. And when we're able to interact body, mind, and soul, we're whole. And I think this is the best place we have to live and act from that place. I think when we are in our window of tolerance, that is the best place to answer those questions of who am I and where do I belong? Or what cost am I willing to pay to be me? I think when we're in the window of tolerance, that is the self. So when I'm working with a client and they're new to connecting to their body, maybe they're just learning about their window of tolerance. We're still honoring and checking in with what their body's telling us. Sometimes they might feel disoriented or disconnected, maybe numb, but their body is testifying to the reality, if they're in that place, that this doesn't feel safe enough for them to engage with. And therefore, it's coming from a place of needing to find some form of safety. So the body is basically saying, maybe I'm needing to dissociate or disconnect, which is going down into some hypoarousal, or it's also in polyvagal theory called the dorsal vagal, which is kind of our nervous system's way of saying, I'm just gonna pull the plug on this because in the past, this has been deeply unsafe for me to feel, to know, and so I just gotta pull the plug. Now, it can also be in a way where it is interacting with our sympathetic nervous system and we're going into kind of that fight, flight, maybe fawn response, Fawning often can look like people pleasing, trying to make friends with the perceived threat, which again is still testifying to the reality this doesn't feel safe. And so we're we're trying to find some form of safety going into the hyper-arousal or even going into the hypo-arousal, the dissociation, the disconnect, disengaging. Now, in our Western Christian culture, I think we tend to be deeply disembodied and it can be difficult to get the information or even to trust the information that our body holds. And that's okay. I think if we continue to build trusting and safe spaces in therapy, we continue to talk about trauma, we continue to talk about attachment, attachment trauma, and we continue to talk about window of tolerance, eventually... People start to see it and they start to feel it for themselves and they start to feel safe about the information their body is giving them. Now, I will also say about the window of tolerance that it's the place in which we can feel our feelings or we can engage in interaction or we can really have a sensation in our body and everything remains online. We can tolerate the information the body is giving us. Now again, I might get activated, I might cry, I might get angry, but I can also stay regulated and be able to tolerate the emotions that come with the story my body is giving me. It doesn't mean that, you know, the window of tolerance doesn't mean that everything is easy or I feel good, I feel positive, or like this is the best thing I've ever experienced. The window of tolerance simply means I can tolerate this in my body without going into hyperarousal or starting to pull the plug and shut down. Now another term that comes from polyvagal theory is neuroception. So polyvagal theory proposes that the neural evaluation of risk and safety reflexively triggers shift in our autonomic state without requiring conscious awareness. So essentially, neuroception is the process by which neural circuits determine whether a situation or a person is safe, dangerous, life-threatening. Now, opposed to, think about the opposite of neuroception is perception. So neuroception happens without maybe conscious awareness, whereas our perception is cognitive thought. We're aware of this process that's happening. We're aware that we are forming a perception or a perspective of something. So perception involves awareness and, uh, you know, brain thoughts, neuroception on the other hand involves brain processes that work outside of conscious awareness. So what happens is that our body through this process of neuroception is always scanning the environment for safety or unsafety for threat And even before we know or before we've had a conscious thought, our body can begin to go up into what would be, like I said, fight, flight, or a fawn response. And if these parts of our sympathetic response don't resolve the threat, typically then we're going to go down into that dissociation or hypoarousal. So that's typically sort of a disconnection or numbness. It can even look like sort of a depression or heaviness. And again, when I talk about window of tolerance and hyperarousal or hypoarousal i always will say it, it's important to recognize that it happens on a continuum right when we go into some hyperarousal there's a continuum before we are hitting the top of that ceiling in our hyperarousal or the you know basement of the hypoarousal there's a lot of stopping points around that so sometimes with clients just to help them understand this concept and to make it a little bit more concrete for them, I'll say, think of the window of tolerance happening on this scale, not the window of tolerance, but think about this whole concept happening on a scale of zero to 10 and your window of tolerance on that scale of zero to 10 would sit in that four to six range. So five would be kind of right there in the middle of our window of tolerance. And when we're going into hyperarousal, right, we're moving out from the 6 and going upward. That ceiling may be the 10 where we're really in that fight, flight, or fawn. Or we start to go down into some hypoarousal. So we're going beyond the 4, downward, you know, into a 0. So there's, again, we can think of that continuum of if I go out of the 6 into hyperarousal, I'm hitting a seven, eight, nine, ten. 10. Or we can also recognize that I might be like a 6.5 and a 6.8, 6.9, 7, 7.2, 7.3. There can be a lot of different variances on that scale before we're, you know, really into some hyper-responses, hyper-vigilant responses. And likewise on the hypo-arousal. It also happens on a continuum where maybe that zero is a dissociated state that we function in or I mean not function we're not functioning really in dissociation but maybe before that I take a step back and I start to withdraw maybe I start to put up some walls and I start to guard myself and I disconnect and I distance and I start to you know sometimes in that hypo arousal I'm wanting to shut down I can even look for problems in my relationship problems in my life and not recognize that maybe that's not actually what's causing me to leave my window of tolerance. So when we talk about window of tolerance, this is really learning the language of the body. Now, some of the language of the body, it's also in our culture. But again, I think in our culture, we also tend to be quite disembodied. So we can use some of the language like, oh, my heart dropped, or I just felt like that was a punch to the gut or, oh my gosh, I got the wind knocked out of me. We can use that language without actually connecting to what's happening in our body. Sometimes I'll say, you know, with some clients, they give me the language of the body. They might say something like that. Like, I just felt like my heart dropped into my stomach. And when I try to expand on that, it's clear to me that in their mind, they're not aware of the body of the language. And so when I maybe, summarizing or repeating back to them what I heard them say, you know, sometimes they'll look at me and be like, I didn't say that. And I'm like, oh, OK, I, I mean, I know you did. Like, I'm not going to argue with them. Right. But in my mind, I'm like, OK, the body of the language was given without the awareness of the mind. Now, as a therapist, I will say it's also important for me to also be connected to my own body because I have to know what's mine what's theirs? How did I feel walking into this session versus the energy that came up in the session? You know, sometimes I've had that experience where I go into a session and all of a sudden I'm like so tired and I can barely keep my eyes open and I'm, you know, taking sips of my water or I'm maybe standing up like, oh, let me look at this book just to kind of try to wake myself up because I feel myself shutting down. I feel myself getting very tired. And it's important for me to know, like, was I tired in my last session? Was I tired walking into this session? Have I been sleeping well? Like, what is happening? Is this mine or is this something that the client comes in with? So it's important as a therapist to also be connected To my own body, sometimes we'll talk about this in terms of emotional hygiene, like what energy emotionally am I walking into my sessions with? And it's important as therapists that we're present in our bodies so that we have this internal framework to actually track with the nervous system in the bodies of those around us. So sometimes as a therapist, I'm listening to my clients. I'm also noticing cues about what is happening in their body you know i'm wondering does the feeling in their body match the words they are saying sometimes they will be saying parts of a story that maybe are disturbing or distressing but they're smiling or sometimes they're talking about something that should be positive but they're smiling but their eyes aren't necessarily smiling which isn't really a genuine smile right when we As human beings are genuinely smiling, typically our eyes are smiling along with our mouth versus our mouth smiling and not our eyes. I'm noticing maybe how they're talking about what a great childhood they had, but they're agitated and their foot doesn't stop bouncing or they're looking at the door because their body is like, okay, this isn't safe anymore for me to talk about this. Or this lady is getting way too close by asking questions and I'm staring at the door because I want to run away. So when I'm noticing these things, it's also important to help the client recognize what it is that they need in that very moment to hopefully nudge them back into their window of tolerance. I would say for most, probably all of my clients that I've worked with, it just has never been safe for them to dive into their story up front in therapy. And if I allow them to do that, they're not gonna feel that therapy is safe. Now, another thing I think is important to understand is emotional expression, like I was talking about, in terms of watching that, how the emotions are being expressed in body language. And again, it can be very complex and I'm not always getting it right because you know, sometimes I'm perceiving something coming up in them and maybe it triggered something in my story. So I always have to be open to the fact that maybe I wasn't triggered walking into the story, but based on something they say, it touches a part of my story. And so I have to be aware that that could also be some of mine as well, not just something that they walked in with. Now we know that experts believe that emotions help us respond to threats by alerting our body to the fight, flight, or freeze or fawn response. We also know that our body reacts the most when it is experiencing negative emotions, such as fear, discomfort, stress, because the negative emotions are what keep us safe in dangerous situations. However, the feelings just don't go away after the situation has passed. These emotions or these sensations become emotional information which stays in our body as trauma. So where are these negative emotions in our bodies? Well. Many of the experts write about how emotional information is stored through what they call packages in our organs, tissues, skin, and muscles. These packages allow the emotional information to stay in our body parts until we can release it. But we may not be aware that there is something there for us to release. It can feel like, you know, over time, that can build up into what we term um, generalized anxiety, where I'm just walking around with anxiety about a lot of things. And I tend to go to that worst case scenario or, you know, the negative emotions triggering me that, you know, safety issues. And I may recognize it as just, I have anxiety and I may not really know how that got stored and the various experiences in my life that resulted in this generalized anxiety. It, it sometimes becomes generalized anxiety eventually, but it typically does not start as generalized anxiety. Now we know that negative emotions in particular have a long lasting effect on our body. Now another term to introduce to you, maybe you've heard it before, maybe not, but it's the term, it's the word interoception. So interoception allows us to answer the question, how do I feel? Now with some of my clients, I may ask them, how do you feel about that? Or what are you noticing? in your body as you talk to me about this, this experience. And with some of them, they give me back a, well, I think, right. They're going to their mind are They don't necessarily understand that I'm asking a feeling question or a body question, and they're responding with a thought or a belief or a theory, right? Sometimes very intellectualized clients can, you know, kind of give me a theory that they have but they aren't necessarily connecting to their body and they can't actually answer that question, how do I feel? Now, again, it's good information for me as a therapist to know where we're starting from and to know some of maybe the defense mechanisms that they've employed in order to function or in order to keep themselves functioning or to feel somewhat safe, even though You know, the fact that they're disconnected from their body would indicate not necessarily feeling safe. So here are some examples that help explain maybe how our body interprets emotions. So when we're angry or fearful or anxious, we tend to have increased activity in our chest, in our back and upper body. This means our muscles become tense and typically our heart starts to beat faster. Whereas when we feel love and joy, it fills the entire body. These emotions typically have a positive effect on our body. They lower the risk for cardiovascular disease. They lower blood pressure. It enables better sleep and they can improve the diet. So how can emotions harm your body? Again, these are some generalized things, but we generally know that anger can affect our liver and its functioning. Fear can affect our kidneys grief affects our lungs, stress affect our heart, and worry affects our stomach. Now, if we have complex trauma and multiple attachment traumas, or and multiple attachment traumas, because multiple attachment traumas can be complex trauma, we may not even understand how this has impacted us and how it's showing up in our current life. And I think a lot of times when we're functioning with complex trauma or multiple attachment traumas, often, again, we haven't been able to put together or connect the dots that that's where this is coming from. So I talked before in uh, the podcast episode on Pete Walker's book, The Tao of Fully Feeling, and I talked about the term that he talked about, which was emotional flashback. So an emotional flashback. OK, let me let me say it in two ways. So. First of all, I probably most of us are familiar with a PTSD flashback. So PTSD kind of came around as a diagnosis, as something we were recognizing as a society in the mental health field in the mid-80s. And this was looking at combat vets who were returning home from the Vietnam War. So in a PTSD flashback, the vet is in his present, right? So he's back in the States, maybe hanging out with friends, maybe on a date, and there's triggers that then put him back into a PTSD flashback, which is, you know, even though he's currently present here in his hometown, all of a sudden he's transported back to the jungles of Vietnam and his brain thinks he's back in the past. That's kind of a PTSD flashback and things that can trigger that, you know, a car backfiring, maybe walking into an asian restaurant smelling things the senses right smelling maybe hearing the language seeing some of the decor in an asian restaurant that maybe kind of transports you back there and and triggers that right in my podcast episode that i talked about the impact of family dysfunction i think this was back in may of 2020 that i recorded that one i talked about you know the PTSD diagnosis coming on board in the mental health field and becoming a diagnosis. About the same time that we were developing the 12-step fellowship of ACOA, which really kind of looks at the impact of family dysfunction. And again, if we grew up in dysfunctional families, we're not going to necessarily have the language for that because it wasn't safe for us to know that. And so the dysfunction of that family may be playing out without our conscious awareness of what is actually playing out. So in emotional flashbacks, it's kind of a little bit the reverse of a PTSD flashback. So in an emotional flashback, I'm actually in my past and I'm experiencing an emotion sensations in my body that maybe I couldn't have at eight because my parents couldn't handle that or I couldn't fully know what was happening, and so I disconnected from my body, and so I didn't have those sensations, or I wasn't aware of how it felt to me. Again, we look at disintegration or compartmentalization. So in emotional flashbacks, I'm having a sensation and emotional response from my past, but my awareness is I'm here in my present life. And we can, we're very good at looking around in our present life, and figuring out who's to blame for what I'm feeling. And so we can find issues with our boss, with our job, we can find issues with our partner, our children. You know, we're trying to make sense of it from the framework that we're aware of, which is I'm in my present and we're not aware that actually this emotion is happened a long, long time ago and just now our body is giving us that information. So I want to just kind of give an example of how those two things work with complex trauma and multiple attachment traumas. In that podcast episode where it was the impact of family dysfunction, I talked about, you know, that in the ACOA 12-step fellowship, they talked about similar to a PTSD flashback, what is going to trigger this trauma of family dysfunction, right? Well. With a combat veteran, it's going to be, you know, triggers, images, sensations of when they were in the combat. And with dysfunctional families, it's going to be triggered by things like getting into a committed relationship, starting to build a life together, beginning to have a family. That type of stuff is going to trigger the emotions and the information from our childhood growing up in the family we grew up in, and we may not fully be aware of that. And again, this can happen on large scales, can happen on smaller scales. So I'll just give an example for me. And I typically, when I talk about this, I'll typically say, here's an example of a way it showed up in kind of a small scale. But the more that I've thought about it, and again, this is my fourth time recording this, I don't know if I'm necessarily accurate about what is big or small from my own life experience, because again, things tended to be minimized and I can minimize things. So I have said in the past recordings, you know, this was kind of a small way that this happened. And I don't, I don't know that it really was a small way. So when I was, when I started college, it was my first semester at college and I developed this rash on one side of my body, it was kind of on my torso, and then a little bit on going up into like my armpit area. And it was painful. And I'd never experienced anything like that before. And, you know, I didn't come from a family where we went to the doctor very often. And so it was kind of unusual for me to be like, I need to go to a doctor. This is, first of all, I don't know what this is. Secondly, it's hurting, it hurts me. So I went to the doctor and you know, I lived in a different town in a different city, probably five hours away from where I grew up. And so I had to just, you know, make an appointment with a doctor, kind of do this thing on my own, which I was able to do. And I went in and the doctor said, this is shingles. And I'd never heard of shingles. And so I said, I, I don't know what that is, you know, and he explained how, you know, I must have had chicken pox as a kid, which I did. And he said, yeah, it's kind of the chickenpox virus that lays dormant in our body and, you know, stress and different things like that can um, trigger it in adulthood and it comes out as shingles. And he was like, are you experiencing a lot of stress? And I'm looking at him and I said, no, I don't feel stressed. And, you know, he kind of was like, oh, let me rephrase that. You are experiencing high levels of stress. And I was just kind of like, I don't think I am like, and I will say, I do not believe I felt stress for decades, probably into my thirties before I really started becoming aware and connecting to my body in a way where I could feel the stress that it was taking on my body. So I love that doctor's appointment thinking Well, I apparently don't have shingles then. If shingles is caused by high levels of stress in adulthood, I must not have it because I don't feel stressed. Now, looking back, I'm sure that I had. I had all the classic telltale signs. The doctor was also telling me how unusual it was at, I was probably 18 to have shingles like that. They typically saw that in patients over 50 or over 60 and I was 19 and having it. And so again, to me, that was evidence that this clearly wasn't shingles. And when I look back, I can clearly see that it was shingles and I have not had an outbreak since then, knock on wood. So I also want to acknowledge that the window of tolerance is subjective. We each have a unique and distinct window depending on multiple biopsychosocial variables. So our personal histories, whether or not we came from childhood trauma backgrounds, our temperaments, our social supports, our physiology, no two windows are going to look exactly the same. Mine may not look the same as yours and so forth, but there are some common indicators of when we're in our window of tolerance and when we're out of our window of tolerance. Now, I will say with a lot of the clients that I work with, and I think this was true for me too, I mean, when I was, you know, becoming a therapist, we weren't talking about this. That would have been, I mean, I've been a therapist 29 years. So, you know, we've had this development over the last 30 years. So I've seen that learning and that new understanding take place in the time that I've been practicing in the mental health field. But we weren't talking about window of tolerance. So some of my clients, I will say, again, I think that window of tolerance can also not be developed If we're in survival mode, if we don't have people in our life who help us start to develop that window of tolerance, then we might go from hyperarousal, and again, that happens on a continuum, into hypoarousal, and back into hyperarousal, and back into hypoarousal. Or our window of tolerance may be very, very small, which I think, again, for young kids, it's probably very, very small. A lot of things overwhelm them. They're not able to tolerate a whole lot. And a lot of what they can tolerate and how they deal with being overwhelmed depends on the caregivers that they have in their life. So because of this, I also want to acknowledge that those who come from relational trauma histories may find that they have smaller windows than their peers who come from non-trauma backgrounds. Those of us with childhood abuse histories may find too that were more frequently and easily triggered or pushed outside of the optimal emotional regulation zone into hyper or hypo arousal. And this is normal and natural given what we've lived through. And everyone, whether or not they came from a relational trauma history or not, is going to need to work and expend effort to support themselves to stay inside their window of tolerance. And they're going to need to practice resiliency when we find ourselves outside of it. It just may mean that those with relational trauma histories may have to work harder, longer, and more deliberately at this. Now in therapy, I also think it's important to give clients an overview of how therapy works. And often I find that I'm giving them permission to not go into the verbal descriptions of what happened too soon. And I'll usually say, I'm gonna ask some questions like in the initial intake sessions, you know, first one to three or four sessions when I'm getting to know them, know this new client. But I'll tell them I'm not going to ask for details of things you can answer in yes or no. You can say I'm not ready to talk about that. I also believe that our bodies are designed to heal. And I think if we move too quickly or if as a therapist, I get that information before I've become a safe person or before they have developed therapeutic trust with me, What can happen is like a car that gets stuck in the snow. So you're putting the gas on, those tires are spinning, but you're just not going anywhere. And I believe if we dive in too quickly, and we haven't spent time learning the pace of the body, this particular body, and honoring the pace of the body, and if we're not noticing the cues, then we can quickly get overwhelmed and it's like we're stuck in the snow where the tires are spinning and internally there's a lot of discomfort, but it's not necessarily productive and it doesn't move us towards progress or deeper understanding. So I may say to a client, it seems like you might be getting activated in your body and that's an important thing to notice. And I'm just trying to normalize that I might also say, you know, if they've come in and I know up front on our intake paperwork or, you know, in the initial email they sent reaching out to schedule a therapy appointment, they might have put something about a recent trauma. And again, I'll just say, you know, that's something we're going to have to unpack over time. And I don't expect you to give me the details of that before I've gained your trust. Now, sometimes too, You know, when I'm working with a client and I've been working with them for two or three, four years, sometimes they'll start to check in with me and, you know, they'll notice the clock and maybe it's quarter to the hour, which typically we go maybe to five to the hour. But they'll just say to me, they'll look at the clock and they're acknowledging that and they say, I think that's all I can handle today. And I'll just say, let's respect that. We covered a lot of ground today. And then I'm usually wanting to check in and just see how they are in regards to tolerating what came up in the session, if we can notice and match the pace of our work with the pace of their nervous system, what begins to happen is for that person, there starts to build some safety. And then there's a deeper integration where healing can actually begin to happen. There's a quote, and I forget who said it first, but the quote is, we repeat what we don't repair. So what I've been talking about so far is also very connected to attachment. And when I talk about attachment, what I'm talking about is an internal framework of how we interact in relationships. And we may not even be aware of that internal framework. Again, in a disembodied culture, we can be very unaware of what information our body holds. So this internal framework is usually formed, you know, from our earliest caregivers And then what happens is those templates are brought with us into our teen and our adult relationships. Now they're also in all of our human relationships. Sometimes there's some variation or nuance, but a lot of research shows that the attachment styles we gained very early in life are consistent throughout our life. So when we are talking about attachment and we're looking at our main caregivers, Sometimes I ask clients, and again, this can take a while for them to start to trust the story their body is giving them, for them to trust the therapeutic relationship and what we're talking about in therapy. So I'm not asking this up front or at the beginning of therapy. I may not be getting to this until year three of therapy or year two of therapy, but I'll ask clients to give me three words that describe mom and three words that describe dad, typically I can gain a lot of information just from those description words and whether or not the clients can come up with those adjectives that match some of the story that they've given me about their upbringing and the family that they grew up in. So when we're talking about attachment, we can split it up as either secure attachment or insecure attachment. With an insecure attachment, there are some other categories as well. And when we're looking at attachment, for me, I always think of the first line from Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy, where he writes, quote, happy families are all alike. Every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. So in this line, I think Tolstoy is saying that for a family to be happy, several key aspects are present. And they're present enough, right? And they're present enough in all happy families. So those things might be like the ability to talk about your emotions, permission to individuate and to develop your own sense of self. It usually requires parents to be mostly functional and to have a functional relationship within the partnership of the parents. And in unhappy families, the details of the dysfunction can differ but these key aspects of happy families are missing. I also think he is addressing how growing up in unhappy families is isolating. We often experience the trauma or the attachment wounds together with our family, but they're also often experienced individually, even if other people are present. I see that in my family of origin. There were six kids in my family growing up, and we rarely talk about the dysfunction, And I think we each experienced it in our own way. And there are rules of dysfunctional families. You know, the ACOA 12-step fellowship talks about this. Don't see, don't feel, don't talk, which is gonna add to the isolating effect of the experience. You know, sometimes I have clients or their spouse will say to me, how can they not talk about this? How do they not even feel this. Like when I married into the family or when I started dating this individual, I felt awkward around their family. And I'll say, well, again, if they can't see it, there's nothing to feel. And what's there to talk about? But again, that adds to the isolating effect of the experience. And it can even add to some of the impact the partner feels, where the partner's feeling something. They're not following these rules. Maybe they follow them in their own family if they're dysfunctional. But maybe these rules didn't apply to their family. And so they're trying to talk about it. They're feeling it, but their partner just doesn't see it. Or if they feel something, they can't link it back to, you know, what they know, what the body knows. So in secure attachment, essentially there's like this internal sense that if there's a rupture, there will be a repair. Generally speaking, it's not perfect. Like I said, nothing is 100% because people are just too complex. But there is enough repair there that it returns you to a baseline of safety and security. And if you think about for a moment, if you just think about what carrying that kind of safety and security around in your body feels like. If you can imagine how powerful that is, we start to see maybe how that looks in our window of tolerance, how we might look, what could be different. Because of the other category we're looking at is insecure attachment. The expectation is that when a rupture happens, there will not be a repair. And when that happens, we get these adaptive strategies to help us manage the fact that we know there's not going to be a repair and our bodies feel a threat because connection is literally essential to our survival. Connection is not ornamental. It's essential. And because this is true, if our connection costs us our authenticity or our ability to develop our authenticity or our individuation, we're going to opt to maintain the connection or the attachment. Now, these adaptive strategies or these defense mechanisms or these ways we opt for connection over authenticity are not the actual self. We can honor that these adaptive strategies got us through, while also imagining who and how we would be if we hadn't needed to compromise. Now, I know we cannot rewind and have the facts of our story be any different. But when we can start to imagine and visualize the damage that was done, we can also begin to imagine how it would be to live as a person Who has healed that damage? Who would that be? Now, before I continue that line of questioning, I want to bring up another dimension of our nervous system. Another important dimension to understand about our bodies is that our bodies prefer familiarity over actual safety. And if we haven't experienced a lot of safety in our lives, that could also feel very uncomfortable to us when we start to experience it. So if you grew up in toxicity and harm and abuse feels really familiar to you, your body will probably actually prefer that until you get more resources, more understanding, more support around you, because that's familiar. And our body goes, you know, I know how to adapt to that. I can survive that. I repeat what I don't repair. This is what we're talking about when we talk about trauma repetition and betrayal bonds. Now, again, sometimes we grew up in family situations where the toxicity and the harm and the abuse wasn't as overt. It wasn't as obvious. Maybe we can't put a finger on it. That might be something like parentification, enmeshment, more of the, I call it, I think I made up this term, I call it more of the passive dysfunction. And again, we can repeat what we don't repair there too. That's not necessarily, it doesn't have less harm on us. It doesn't leave us less vulnerable because the dysfunction was passive. And we can also start to repeat that unless we become aware of, are able to recognize and start to change the pattern so that we do not continue to repeat it. Now, I also want to say there's this notion and belief that exists in our society where mental health and the relationship with our physical bodies can be so bypassed. And I think the thinking is I can reach this higher plane or this cosmic level by keeping everything in the spiritual realm. And I think, again, the spiritual realm certainly has a place, but it's not something we can bypass the body and the mind in order to reach. And I think when we believe that, that can become very harmful. Without having a whole self, which is a connection to mind, body, and spirit or soul, we're just very vulnerable. And if we aren't working internally with our story then, as well as now, it's very difficult for us to judge for ourselves if somebody else is engaged in their internal work. We can't determine who is safe and who is not. You know, for me, when I started, well, I would say this happened even in high school, but more so when I, you know, graduated high school, was going to college, I had some awareness of the dysfunction that I came from. And again, the dysfunction in my family was pretty overt. Although a lot of, like my mom denied the overtness of the dysfunction. I mean, there was violence that happened in our family Not every family has violence. And you would think that, you know, that's clearly something to put your finger on and point to and be like, that's dysfunctional. And yet, in my family, that wasn't clear. Like, it was like, what do you mean violence? No, there's no violence. I remember one of the worst fights I ever had with my mom. You know, I was older in college working on my bachelor's degree and I was getting a bachelor's in social work. So I was in the social work department field taking classes for my major and they were talking about dysfunctional families and it was like something came alive for me in my brain and i was just like oh my gosh this makes so much sense my family was dysfunctional and it was almost like a relief like somehow i could begin to make sense of this and I excitedly shared with my mom my new learning. Again, it was very new and undeveloped learning. There was a lot of depth to understand the dysfunction. And my mom was not really excited by the news that I came bearing, nor was she happy that I thought our family was dysfunctional. And it resulted in, I don't know, probably a couple of hour long fight, which wasn't uncommon with my mom, where I kind of had to convince her that I did not believe our family was dysfunctional. I couldn't just pretend to say that. I had to be convincing to her. My mom was a smart woman. So I had to convince her that no, of course I would not believe that. What was I thinking? And I never meant to say that in the first place. So I had some awareness around this. And for me, I had just decided that If I could avoid having relationships, close relationships, then I could avoid pain, causing other people pain or having pain caused for me. And that was my plan that, you know, for many years, that was my plan. Like I was talking with one of my colleagues the other day and she was talking about, you know, when she was in college and dating and she was like, you know, my rule for dating was this. And I mean, she knows me pretty well. She knows my backstory. And I said, well, my rule was no dating. So there, that, that was my rule. Do not date, don't let people get close to you and don't get close to other people. And again, I mean, my husband, you know, we knew each other initially as friends. And I mean, he would say today, I was talking to him earlier last month and just saying, you know, here's kind of the story. Like if I'm being honest about how we met and how we ended up married, here's the rundown that I give, but I've never really run that past you. I mean, I think I don't know if you would tell it any differently, right? So I we were out on a drive and I was just kind of telling him. Here's what I say, right? And he was kind of smiling and laughing at different parts of, you know, the story as I was telling it and you know, I finished telling it and I said, "Would you change anything or are there parts that you see differently than I do?" And he kind of laughed and he was like, "No, that that pretty much uh covers it." And I said, so there's nothing you would add or and he's like, I mean, I have some different perspectives, but just because I was on the other end of stuff. But he's like, I think you have done a good job putting in my perspective. I mean, we have talked about it before. And at the time, I think we talked about it the time we were you know, transitioning from friends into dating. But again, that was a that was a difficult place for me because I truly believed that if I could keep him at a friend level, that I could avoid pain and that then I would be preserving our friendship and our relationship versus if, you know, we got close to each other, if we started dating, we would end up hating each other. I mean, I told him that like when he was expressing an interest in starting to date and move it from friendship to more than that. And, you know, I just said, I would rather be friends with you for my lifetime than date for a little while and then hate each other. And to him, he was kind of like, why would we hate each other? And in my mind, that's just how relationships work. Now, even today, you know, I've been married 29 years. In March, we will have been married 30 years. You know, and and part of that plan, I never planned on getting married. I never planned on having kids because all of that could lead to pain. And what I have learned today is some of the most sacred moments of connection and relationship for me have been when I lean in instead of away from their pain or I let others lean in when I'm in pain. That the beautiful moments in relationships aren't when everything goes well. Those can be some beautiful memories and some beautiful moments. But for me, I have found that much of my healing And much of me learning about who I am came from being in close relationships, whether that was with friends, whether that's as a mom and now mom to adult children and being a partner with my husband. And there's been a lot of pain and there's been times, you know, sometimes I say to my kids, I don't always know how to separate out being a therapist and being a mom And I'll say to them, like, and I became a therapist before I became a mom, which we should all be very grateful for because I think we, I, that avoided a lot of distressing situations because I was a therapist before I became a mom. And I was a therapist early in my marriage. And so I was learning and growing and developing myself and having some awareness before I had gone too far down that road of relationships. One of the sayings that I've picked up from Dr. Patrick Carnes that I've heard him say multiple times over the years is nobody can do it for you and you can't do it alone. I really think this work of developing a solid sense of self, there's not really a finish line. I think it's we have to take the posture of we're all in process. None of us are fully complete. None of us have it all together, and at different times, we're going to need additional support. We're going to need someone to be able to give us direction or multiple someones. I think there are times we definitely need community. And so I think all of this becomes connected to those things that get passed down to us, and it gets especially harmful when we cannot differentiate between toxic and non-toxic people or toxic and non-toxic communities. Now again, I also want to acknowledge how truly painful this work can be. Hopefully there's this moment where the spell breaks and all of a sudden we have this moment or where all of these moments of uncertainty, fear, insecurity, they coalesce and we, we wake up. That's the way that I describe it. And we start to think that maybe it can be different life can be different and maybe we as a person can be different and oftentimes this is a traumatic thing and it's a scary thing it's also a necessary thing and when the spell breaks it can feel like we're in zero gravity we don't know where the ground is our feet are not under us we don't know where we are and sometimes because our unhealthy relationships were so consuming The isolation and loneliness that we feel is just incredibly profound and disorienting. And I want to normalize that if you're a person listening to this and you've had that experience, you are not alone. Now, when I talk about our body giving us information, this is it. This is the information. Our body holds important information about our story. Maybe it holds the majority of our narrative. And for many years, it was not safe for us to know what our body knew. When it isn't safe for us to know what our body knows, it's not like the body just stops taking in information. It isn't designed to stop taking in information. And the way it gathers information is through the senses and through the sensations in our body, the emotions. So instead, what happens is we disconnect from our body. We separate the mind from the body And we begin to live in our heads and we're unaware of what our body knows and again this can happen in both big and small ways so in addition to me not necessarily having any conscious awareness of how much stress my body was experiencing on a daily basis growing up also when i was in high school i mean when i thought about this i don't think that my senses were dulled. Because like I said, I don't i don't think our body stops taking in information. And one of the ways it brings in that information is through our senses. But I think I had become so disconnected to my body that my senses, at least my awareness of my senses, were very dulled. So for example, one year I was in high school and it must have been coming up on Thanksgiving and I was with a group of friends and we were talking about the holiday, I think. And, you know, it was one of those conversations that teenagers have that really means nothing. And it's kind of a weird conversation. And we were talking about what tastes better, chicken or turkey? Or which do you like better, chicken or turkey? And I was listening to different friends say their opinion. And one of them asked me, well, what do you think, Jackie? And I was a little perplexed at how they would distinguish between which one they liked better or why they liked one better than the other. And so when I was asked, I just said like, don't they taste the same? Like I, I to me, I was listening to their comments, but in my mind, I was just like, there's no difference. And you know, of course they were like, no, of course they don't taste the same. And I was really perplexed because in to me, they tasted the same. Now, two of my friends in high school, You know, the one friend came from a family of Diet Coke drinkers. And I mean, the other one didn't come from, I mean, I think she drank Diet Coke as well as her family did. And I just could not tell a difference, right? Like, which they would make fun of me for, I mean, not in a mean kind of way, just kind of in a joking way where, you know, I could not tell a difference between Coke and Pepsi or Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi, or even the store brand cola drinks that you can buy like, I just could not tell a difference. Now, at my age currently, I think it's surprising that I couldn't tell a difference between chicken and turkey because I definitely can tell a difference now between chicken and turkey, both the texture and the taste. I also can tell a difference between Coke and Pepsi and store brand colas. And honestly, I don't really like any of them all that often. You know, I'll have a Diet Coke every. Now and then, but probably for the most part, sometimes I think like, oh, I'll have a diet Coke. Oh, that sounds great. And I maybe drink a quarter of it and I never finish it. And maybe twice a year, I would say in that ballpark of twice a year, I have a diet Coke and I'm like, that was great. That was definitely what I needed. Other than that, I think I might need it and I'll, I'll start to drink it, but I never finish it. And it's just, you know, had I not had a couple of those conversations that I remembered, you know, the way I think about it now, it's just hard for me to believe that my senses were that dulled. I still, at this age, at 52, I'm still coming to appreciate or recognize how much stress I lived under every day. And I feel it in my body, even though I do not live that way today. So I know that this is past information that is coming up. And and there are times I get quite emotional just recognizing how stressful, frightening it was for me just to live in my house, to live my life when I was much younger. So what happens when we come to this moment where we start to wake up and break free of the great forgetting spell that we were under. Well, oftentimes our body and the cognition or the thoughts, the mind can be sort of fighting each other. The mind may be saying, this is too much. Don't look at this. You can't survive knowing this. This is not good for you to see this. Just push it all back down and keep going. And that can be in conflict with our body but I've been ignoring my body for so long, I don't know what to do with the conflict. So I just submit to the cognition again, and I push it down and go back to ignoring my body. And for a lot of people, that's where they find themselves really stuck in many situations. And so coming back to that quote, we repeat what we don't repair. One of the things that it makes me think about is how we were formed. In our early years, what did that feel like to us? What did the home you were raised in feel like? What did it feel like to be with my parents? What were we told? What messages were we given, both verbal and nonverbal? Now, when I ask clients these questions, some of the answers I get are chaotic, empty, scary. It's not uncommon for the answers to match the emotional struggles the client is experiencing in the present. Now, I usually also want to know, what does authority mean? Because our first authority figures are our parents. And they may not be reliable authority figures. I work with a lot of people who have authority issues and they don't know why, or they don't understand where that originated from. I also want to know, what does it mean to have a body? And what does it mean to listen to that body? What does it mean to be in relationship? Because again, sometimes close connecting relationships, maybe we long to be known. We long to be seen. We long to be loved. But when that happens, maybe our authority issues get triggered and we have a difficult time getting feedback. We have a difficult time asking questions. We have a difficult time with the person seeing us and actually seeing the story that we came from. I want to know what does love mean to you and what does it mean to be loved? These are some really central questions that depending on how that was formed in you is probably going to come back and shape how you respond to your body when your body begins to give you information. Now, like I said earlier, we grow up with all sorts of messages that disembody us. Like if you think it, you can be it or mind over matter. And what I say is, there is no mind over matter. There is only us. And we carry the scars. We carry the harm. We might be able to white-knuckle it for many years. And at some point, I believe the body says, enough. You haven't listened, but enough. And I believe that's a higher power moment, however you want to define that. Our body may be saying, okay, I'll survive this. I'll go into survival mode. I will white knuckle it for you. I'll figure out how to adapt. I'll make myself really small. I'll be submissive to these people who are harming me just to get through this threat. But at some point the body goes, that's as far as I go. It's time to do it different. And usually that comes from a place of clinically depressed. We have generalized anxiety. We're addicted or we're just not functioning anymore. We may have lived with high anxiety or chronic illness that has become profound because there's so much inflammation in our body. And oftentimes we've been told to think of our body like this tool. And that's not what we are. We are not tools. We're not commodities. We're not objects. And I think our body gets to a point of, in Gabor Mate's words, being at dis-ease. Because something in us longs and is made for wholeness and we repeat what we don't repair because we want wholeness. This repetition, this repeating what we don't repair is also a manifestation of what needs to be healed. It is our body showing us the scars, the harm, the story it holds. And because something in us growing up meant that I got shamed or psychologically abused, physically or emotionally neglected. We do have this thought, maybe this time it can be different. And I get where that comes from. I see so many folks where this is not the first time. Usually this has been years, decades in the making, when finally they say, maybe this level of anxiety isn't normal maybe i shouldn't have to go to the place where i have a panic attack when somebody does or says something that triggers me maybe it's not normal to feel like i can't stay in my body and i think bringing some curiosity and some compassion is what starts to shift things maybe we start to realize that the loneliness and the emptiness that is such a common companion for us doesn't actually have to be so intense it might make somebody who never thought they would benefit from therapy make a call to schedule a therapy appointment. And if that therapist is a trauma-informed therapist, they understand that initially a big part of their job is to create a safe place to witness. And this model of compassionate attention that a therapist can hold in a session actually gives the client the model for how to listen to their hurting parts. Therapists can teach clients that we can listen to these hurting parts these frightened and terrified parts. And if we can be compassionate and empathetic with the story, rather than simply running back into more harm or pushing it back down or shutting the door of the compartment that was opened, if we can pause and take some deep breaths and release the emotions, maybe this time will be different. Maybe we have a safe person in our life that we can say, this is what I'm feeling and this is what I wanna do, but I know that's a repetition of something. And maybe we start to have the imagination to think that our life could be different and that we can be different. And we begin to have the hope to believe that this is not who we are. This is not how we were made and this is not our authentic self. Now, it doesn't usually come right away. Oftentimes we need someone to witness us to create the safety to start right where we are. And I will say, I think this is true for many therapists, that myself as a therapist, I have no expectation of when or how this will happen for a client that I'm sitting with. What I'm usually thinking to myself is where we are right now is okay. And my job is to be here with you and honor your pain, honor the story that your body is holding, honor the cost that you have paid just to be here right now feeling what you're feeling. Now with some of my clients, they start to get foggy when we get to this place and they start to forget their story. They forget how we got right here to this emotional place. And I have several clients who will ask, how did we get here? And I kindly and gently remind them, well, this is what we know about your story. And then one session, they don't need that reminder. And they say to me, usually after some tears, after some emotional release, okay, so this is what I know of my story. And I believe the wisdom of our body begins to say thank you. Thank you so much to my mind for protecting me all these years. But we have to feel what's been stored in our body. We have to remember what it felt like to be five or six, what it felt like to feel terrified in this loud and big and confusing world, and to know that our parents couldn't really help us They hadn't figured out how to navigate this world in a way that worked for them. And that when we start to feel what our body offers, our mind can begin to find the language to verbalize and articulate the suffering and the sorrows. And our heart can show up with self-compassion, self-empathy. Now, I think there is a really strong connection between how disembodied our culture tends to be and how poorly we grieve. I think that there's a really strong connection to that because grief requires that we be in our bodies. And to bypass the body often is a way to sometimes consciously and sometimes unconsciously not feel. And that means we then don't grieve. But the cost of that is that whatever is not grieved is still in us. If we go back to that idea from earlier that our body is holding this story, that just because we haven't outwardly expressed it or we don't have ongoing awareness of it doesn't mean it's not there and doesn't mean it's not real. It doesn't even mean it isn't showing up in our present life. Now, I think there are many cultures globally that do grief well. And I think it's important to know that there are, and there have been folks that are doing this well, which means we can too. I think grief is really an essential piece to healing. And to widen that out, I believe that feeling all of our feelings is really important to healing because what tends to happen when we're disembodied is that our window of tolerance is really very small. And when our window of tolerance is small, it means that it doesn't take a whole lot to get our body overly activated into fight or flight or fawn or into a dissociative experience. So I'm going to give another example. I'll just use my personal story. Growing up, I grew up in a traumatic home. I said to, I grew up in a violent home. And I was also born into a family where religion was a big part of our lives. I mean, in theory. But I I think also somewhat in practice. That's where it gets confusing to me too. But something about the church environment felt really familiar to the home that I was growing up in. Now, I often say that for me, the church was my most functional parent until I realized it was actually my third dysfunctional parent. Now, I don't pretend to know that is the case for everyone, but it was true for me. What I was doing, even as I became an adult and had kids of my own, I was repeating those dynamics within the church that I experienced at my home growing up without even really being aware of this. But my body was already primed. Primed to become more traumatized because of unresolved and even unknown to me patterns and traumas that my body knew so well. And the role in my family that I played repeated in the church. So in my family of origin, I'm the second of six kids. Now my family has talked about this as siblings, maybe twice that I can think of. We've talked about how mom played favorites. Mom had favorites amongst the six of us. And I think at one of the times that we were talking about this, I mean, my mom would not have wanted us to talk about this or acknowledge that we all knew this. I think one of the times was after her death and, you know, we're at the house and trying to get things ready for her funeral and, you know, just all of that type of stuff that happens after a death, and. I think we were having one of those discussions then about how mom played favorites. And in that discussion, we all put on the table who we saw as being the two favorites and the least two favorites. And we all agreed on the order of the two favorites and of the two least favorites. Now the two in the middle, some of us had them, you know, in different orders, but for the most part, there was an agreement on the two favorites and the, the two non-favorites. And I was the sixth favorite child. And that wasn't news to me when my siblings were putting that on there. It was surprising to me that they knew it. Because again, we never talked about that openly. But it's not like I didn't know that. That wasn't surprising to me when we all agreed that I was the sixth favorite. So my brother, who was the fifth favorite once told me that while he didn't think he was ahead of me by much, he was ahead of me. Now, I was also a caretaker of my siblings, not my parents. The other thing about, you know, my mom did play favorites. I would say my dad was pretty consistent with all six of us in that he could not have cared less about all six of us. He wasn't a good father or parent to any of us. So there was consistency there in a negative way. And then my mom played favorites. And so, you know, on my topic of podcast ideas for 2023, I want to talk about enmeshment. I also want to talk about parentification. So I would say I was a caretaker. I was parentified over my four younger siblings, but there was not enmeshment with me and my mom. I don't think anybody enmeshed with my dad because he just simply was absent so much. We could go days and almost a whole week and never even see him even though at the time he lived at the house there was evidence that he came home and slept there but like we could never we could go a whole week and not actually lay eyes on him or see him have any interaction with him and so the enmeshment piece wasn't going to happen with dad with any of us and i couldn't enmesh with mom because mom saw me as a threat to her you know i had letters i eventually got rid of them i kept them way too long in my life and would forget i even had them and then i might find them as i'm going through old papers where she would literally tell me you know that she felt like i was a threat to her or that i made her look bad i would say the parentification probably became the most obvious or the most overt maybe when I was 15. So when I was 15, you know, my mom had Crohn's disease. I think she was diagnosed when I was in the third grade. And when I was 15, she had another flare-up of the Crohn's. And then there were multiple complications, I think getting her ready for the surgery and after the surgery. I don't really recall. And I think people were kind of keeping us in the dark because I think they didn't want us to worry. We were her kids and we were young. And my older sister at that time would have been like 17 and she had a job and she could drive and I don't have a lot of memories of her being there. I mean, I'm sure she was there and I'm sure she came home and slept there and that type of stuff. And I don't recall my dad being present, which was not different than how it was when my mom was at home. But my memory is that this flare-up started right at the end of my ninth grade year. And by the time she was released from the hospital, my 10th grade year had started. And so for, you know, a couple months through without that summer period, I was in charge of my four younger siblings. I think the youngest would have been about four. And then the one under me would have been 11. So from four to 11, I was basically in charge of them. And again, I'm 15. I can't drive. I don't have a license. But I was, I was parentified. I cleaned the house. I took care of them. I arranged play dates. Um, You know, people from the neighborhood would bring over dinner a couple of times a week and I would wash the dishes and write a thank you note and get them back to them, thinking in my mind that's what my mom would do and that's what she would want me to do, you know, to show that she had taught me well or whatever. And, you know, one day, I think it was a Saturday after she had gotten out of the hospital and was home, she was probably home a couple of weeks, and on this one particular Saturday, you know, she got really I would say depressed, and I think she was gonna leave and just go on a drive, which also wasn't super uncommon for her. Sometimes when she got in that maybe depressed, maybe feeling bad for herself, she would want to leave and might say things like, nobody needs me anyway, or nobody's gonna care, right? But typically I think we always knew she would come back. We just didn't know how long she would be gone. And so she left. And, you know, I went into my bedroom and saw this note that she had left for me. And in the note, you know, she said, like, do you even know how it made me feel? Again, this isn't verbatim because I finally got rid of the note. But she said, like, do you know how it made me feel when people would come visit me in the hospital and they would tell me how well things were going at home and they had stopped by or they had brought dinner by and the house was clean, the kids were cared for, you returned dishes with thank you notes. And she, in essence, said, like, you make me look bad. You know, you don't even need me. You're probably doing a better job parenting than I even am. Just that type of stuff, right? That wasn't the first time that I recall hearing that. Or maybe she wrote other letters because that was not uncommon for her to do. But typically, I mean, that was where, you know, my parentification and my caretaking was the most overt but that's not where it started. It started younger than that. And typically it had to be on the down low. I was what I call a behind the scenes caretaker. Because again, if I had done it openly, like I did in this example, it would confirm to my mom what she already thought and what she already would say, which was that I was a threat to her or I made her look bad. And so then fast forward in my church, you know, I never really had a big role to play. I will say, I think I gave a lot to my church, but it was also kind of behind the scenes kind of, that I was giving to the church, whether that was in a role that I played, a teacher or something like that, but it wasn't any you know, kind of big role that I ever had. And eventually I was also told by my church leaders that I was a harmful influence and that I could not be trusted. And because I wasn't fully aware of the information in my body, I was primed for when something painful happened. My body would internalize that as trauma versus grieving it as a hurtful and traumatic experience. But to know that who I am is separate from what happened or what was said. So because I internalized what was said, I couldn't be appropriately angry. I couldn't properly advocate for myself in ways that I needed. And that was a breaking point for me, though. It was a time when my body said, enough. And with time and work on myself, I was able to appropriately set boundaries. I mean, I set some boundaries right up front in that I never went back, which I feel like was an appropriate boundary. But with time and with work, I was able to set more appropriate boundaries. I was able to express anger about what had happened. And I was able to advocate for myself. And I feel like, You know, looking back at that experience, for the first time in my life, I was my own authority and I came to this place of knowing that never would somebody hold their authority over me again. Now, I know that that doesn't mean I am an authority to anyone else, but for me, I stepped into my own authority for myself and I reconciled with my own power. I also reclaimed more authority of my emotions. I had cut myself off from them when I was so young. And reclaiming my emotions also led me to being able to have more joy. Because again, going back to the window of tolerance discussion, it's like a container that just has more room and doesn't have to stay small. This has also been what has led me to call it also the window of truth. Because when we face the truth of our story, the truth of our emotions about our story, as painful as that is, we start to have more room in the container for other things. We can just start to have emotions we aren't as familiar with as hurt and pain and disappointment and sorrow and fear. We start to have room for new storylines, new ways of living and new ways of being. And so because there's more room our body moves through the experience and is no longer stuck in our system. And that's what I think of when we talk about grief is that it's a really normal part of the human experience to have grief. In fact, I think we have probably pathologized grief in our culture, which is a shame. So, okay, now going back, I want to talk about when I get new clients and I haven't accepted new clients for a couple of years now, but I also you know, do supervision with other therapists and consultation with other therapists. And so I will always uh, tell them like, just reaching out and making a therapy appointment and then showing up to the session is a really big deal. And we can never deny what a big deal that is for our clients. And sometimes when clients show up, it can feel like in that first session that there's this energy that's like saying, okay, where's my checklist? Like, how do I get to healing and how do I do that right now? And if not right now, next week. And what I, as the therapist want to do is actually slow that down. And the reason why is because we do have this tendency, especially once we've noticed that, oh, wow, this is really happening and it's really as bad as I thought it was, maybe maybe worse, maybe I don't even have a sense of how bad it is, I think the first thing you know, I say to therapists that I'm doing supervision with, or even with clients, is that pacing yourself in this process is going to be truly essential. One of the things that I say a lot is, the more complicated the trauma, the more complex the healing. So if you're a person who's recognizing That your story is complicated. There is no band-aid that is going to fix this. And you've probably tried most, if not all, of the temporary fixes for the issue. And typically, when the narrative is complex, there are also relationships wrapped up into the complexity. There might be faith issues wrapped up into it, family issues, family of origin issues, community beliefs, ways of being and not being, so I think the very first step in honoring it is recognizing this is real. What you're going through is real, and it's probably pretty big for you, and that is so normal. The second thing I would just say is that to know some really basic skills is going to be really helpful. So one of the things that I talk about a lot with clients, especially up front, is something called grounding. And grounding is something that is essentially using our senses to come back into our body, and specifically what I mean by that is to come back into our window of tolerance, because our window of tolerance is the place from which you can begin to plan and engage, you can make a plan of rebuilding some safety, whether that is needing to take some time away from a particular church or from certain relationships, certain friends, certain family members. We can start to get objective about what boundaries need to look like, what is working and what is not. And this is important because we need our prefrontal cortex online to know and do these things. And the prefrontal cortex is best available to us when we're in our window of tolerance. So grounding is a really basic skill that you can learn and that you can implement every day, multiple times a day. And it's something you can take wherever you are, driving in your car, at a meeting at work. Grounding, it's a tool that you can always move into when you feel yourself starting to get out of your window of tolerance. One of the ways that we typically start with grounding, and there's a lot of ways to do grounding, But if you're just getting started, one of the ways it can sound like when you're getting grounded in this moment, in this reality, is we can start using our senses. So five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. And again, that's just one example of doing grounding. There's lots of different ways to ground, but basically grounding is getting us into this moment, this age, this reality, in this place, wherever that place is that we are right then. Another basic skill to start using is deep breathing. So for many people, we're uncomfortable with extending our belly. And it's not like we have to extend it a lot, like little kids who can like really push out their belly and make it look like they're pregnant. We don't have to do that to have good deep breathing, but in deep breathing, the belly is engaged. And I also think that says something about our culture that simply extending our belly for deep breathing can be a barrier to deep breathing. Sometimes when I've presented or I'm just sitting with a client, And we're learning this skill of deep breathing. I'll say, you know, put one hand on your chest and then put one hand on your belly so you can feel the two working together. And it's not uncommon to get jokes or comments because just my suggesting that they touch their belly can make people uncomfortable. And so if you've lived outside of your window for a long time, or if you've been on the edges of your window most of your life, this is going to be a little bit challenging at first. And I just want to encourage you to give it a try. Because what we're trying to do is actually tap into the wisdom of our body so that we can take some further steps towards healing and building some sort of stability and tolerance. Viktor Frankl said, quote, between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is our power to choose our response. In our response lies our growth and our freedom end quote. I would add that this space is also where change happens, where neural networks are formed, and where we help ourselves start to shift our beliefs. Healing happens in the slowing down, in the being with, and in the making of space for something new, a new experience, a different perspective, a new understanding, a new and healthier response. Now, like I said, our bodies are actually designed to move towards healing. And I've seen this happen for many clients over the years, and I've experienced it myself. And our body system can also get hijacked. So I'm gonna pull here from one of my former guests on the podcast and one of my CSAC colleagues, Michelle Mays, and her wording and her explanation of our threat system and our attachment system. And if you're not familiar with Michelle, I would encourage you. She has a lot of great blogs, Partner Hope. She has a lot of great blogs for partners. She also works with sex addicts and just, you know, kind of doing all around the CSAT work, but has some really great information in her blogs that she puts out on a regular basis. Michelle also has a book that her initial book, not very long, super helpful. And then she's also been working on a book, I think for a couple of years that I've heard her talk about this book that she's been working on, super excited for when this book comes out. So if you haven't heard of her or her work, check that out. So she talks about our threat and our attachment systems. And basically, you know, like we talked about, neuroception is this unconscious awareness that, you know, our system is kind of scanning for safety, danger, and you know, usually that's happening in the background, it's happening outside of our conscious awareness. And when it detects a threat or it actually perceives a threat, it may not actually be a threat, but when it perceives a threat, our threat system is gonna come from the background, it's gonna come more to the foreground. And for an example, we might talk about like, if I'll use kind of Utah language. So if I'm out hiking in the mountains and I come across, let's say a mountain lion, because those are not uncommon. My threat system is gonna go on, right? Because its purpose is to keep me alive and to keep me safe. So I might go into fight or flight. I might play dead, go into the freeze response. I may also try to fawn, see if I can make friends with the mountain lion, or maybe just look like, hey, I'm no threat to you. I'm just a nice little person going on a hike. Probably, I don't know how successful we would be making friends with a mountain lion, but that's our threat system, right? Those are the options it goes into to try to keep us alive. And again, we're moving into a different part of our brain. We're not in our prefrontal cortex just because that type of thinking slows us down. And in those moments, every second counts, so to speak. And so we kind of go into that limbic system part of our brain, which is quite reactionary, and it's taking in data and processing it and reacting very quickly. Do I run east? Do I go north? Do Like all of that stuff, it's not really running it through conscious thought, but it is operating on data that it's bringing in and reacting to give us the best chance of surviving. Now, one of the ways that we would signal to our threat system that the threat has passed and that I'm safe, is with our attachment system that you know i'm back again with the people i love i'm giving them hugs i'm like oh my gosh i'm so glad i'm not dead i'm so glad i'm here with you you know they're also hugging us kissing us telling us how glad they are that we're alive and that we're safe and again so often our attachment system can signal to our threat system either that there is no threat or that the threat has been resolved. Now I still may have some chemicals coursing through my body, adrenaline, cortisol, that type of stuff that also helps me survive when a threat is detected. And I still may be a little shaky, I may have a hard time sleeping the next couple of days or even a week, I might be a little bit more revved up still. And I probably need to discharge some of that adrenaline, that cortisol and kind of get it out of my system. But just being able to socially engage, again, because that's another area that we do well when we're in our window of tolerance is social engagement. If I'm in hyperarousal, if I'm in hypo arousal, not great at social engagement. So that's one of the ways that we determine that threat has passed and that I'm okay. And we can return to this baseline of safety, security through our attachment relationships now with betrayal trauma and sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior disorder or infidelity one of the things that happens is the people or the person that we're most attached to our primary uh romantic partner is now in our threat system and that you know creates what michelle calls the cycle of dread where I desperately want to move back into relationship and into attachment in order to resolve this threat that I feel, and I might even have moments where I'm able to do that. And then other days I might seem okay and I might seem like, we're good, I'm good, this is good, we're gonna be okay. And then maybe I'm watching a television show or a song comes on and it's talking about an affair, or it's talking about cheating, and that thrust system comes up and goes full bore, and I am, again, I can't look at my partner, I give him the cold shoulder, I wanna sleep in another room, or I want them to sleep in another room, and yet they're the person that I want to attach to in order to restore a sense of safety. Now, again, this can be worked through but it's a pretty complex dynamic the other thing that i think is important to understand when i'm working with sex addicts is to help them understand that this is not a conscious choice their partner is in just like if i'm hiking and i come across a mountain lion i'm not choosing to perceive this as a threat my system perceives it as a threat and it goes into action and then when I'm back with my attachment people and I'm feeling safe and secure, again, I'm not choosing to not be upset or to not feel threat. These are my attachment people and I just don't feel the same threat that I did because I'm with my attachment people. And so that cycle can be complex for couples who are dealing with that dynamic. And the truth is people in our attachment system should not be in our threat system. Now, sometimes with clients or couples that I'm working with, and let's say we're not dealing with sex addiction and betrayal trauma, or let's say we've worked through a lot of these stages and we're getting to the stages of repairing and reestablishing, recreating a new relationship dynamic. Again, as human beings, because we're complex, we're gonna miscommunicate, we're gonna misunderstand, we're gonna step on each other's toes, so to speak. And sometimes when your toes get stepped on, it hurts. And that doesn't mean that this person goes back into my threat system. It may mean we're miscommunicating, we misunderstood, we didn't fully listen because we've got 10 things going on in our head. At the same time, our partner's communicating something to us. But when our nervous system is used to operating on high alert, something can trigger us or make us uncomfortable. And we might interpret it as a threat or even as trauma when in actuality, a nervous system that's stuck on high alert and operating on high alert will perceive threat when there actually isn't the threat that it's perceiving. Likewise, our nervous system may also not recognize threats when they're present simply because that particular kind of threat has been normalized or it's very familiar. Now, I often say never underestimate our ability as human beings to normalize our family of origin dynamics and generalize them to other relationships or how we perceive the world to work so when our system has been hijacked we can lose some of the power and preciseness of our experiences we might perceive cruelty when really there's just differences of perspective what might make us feel uncomfortable could actually be perceived as a threat distress might feel like it's traumatizing. Sometimes we perceive the relational partner we're with as the threat instead of recognizing that maybe their healthiness or their more secure attachment is actually triggering the dysfunction of my family of origin. Part of healing requires us to have more nuances in order for us to determine what is happening and what or where the origin source is. And again, Sometimes we don't know what the origin source is, and maybe we don't need to. Maybe we notice anxiety or fear, and we can simply acknowledge this has been a long-standing emotion and sensation throughout my life. Maybe I just have operated for a long time with this nervous energy, right? And I call it anxiety, and again, that can come from a lot of different places and we might know some of them and not all of them. And I can have compassion and empathy. I can know that it will pass and also that it'll come again and I'm going to be okay. Maybe we can even develop healthy relationships and bring safe people into our life who are also doing their work and can listen to us with compassion that we can seek consultation from and that they can operate as a fair witness. Now, I know there are conversations, well, maybe I'm being too generous to call them conversations, but I see comments and judgments made about how trauma is getting overblown. And I will say on the one hand, as a mental health professional, and a mental health professional who has been doing this for many years, I think it is good for mental health professionals to educate the general population about some of these issues, about trauma, about attachment, about, oh, I don't know, anything, right? Depression, anxiety. It's good to get some education out to the general population about some of the mental health issues that can go on. And at the same time, you know, I see, you know, in 2022, 2023, we have so many opportunities or so many avenues to get some of this education out there and sometimes I see you know I have a young client I think she's like 20 and she'll often say to me like how come you're not on TikTok you should really be on TikTok because the things that you say make way more sense than the therapists who are on TikTok and I'll just say I don't think I'm going to get on TikTok I have a podcast people can find me it's not like I'm not accessible but I just don't think I wanna go on TikTok as a mental health professional. Maybe that'll change, right? I could have said that many years ago about any of the social media sites, but right now that's how I feel. I know there's some good therapists putting stuff out on TikTok. I'm just not at a place yet where I wanna do that. And I think there's some good information that consumers of therapy are then sharing their information or their learning process, their healing process on TikTok. And that's also a good way to start educating other people, reducing stigmas, maybe normalizing going to therapy and increasing self-awareness, understanding dysfunctional family systems and the impact that that has going onward in our life. I think education is good. But I also, you know, see people diagnosing things. You know, sometimes I'll Tell my clients, like, no, do not diagnose yourself based on a TikTok video. Diagnoses are quite complex. And you can't put something out there saying, here's how you diagnose yourself. Or, you know, your roommate should not be putting stuff out there saying, here's how you diagnose this complex issue. So I get that on the one hand. I even see this on some of the therapist listservs or in some of the social media groups for therapists that I'm part of where even among therapists, there's some disagreement about how much trauma is getting talked about. And they might be saying, well, it's not trauma. Everything isn't trauma. And I think I'm open to that, but I also am saying, okay, well then what are we calling it? Because like with a lot of the people I work with, there is pain or there's comments and you know, I see judgments and maybe I'm sensitive to that because this is my kid's generation, You know, this Gen Z generation. And there's comments and judgments made about this younger generation wanting safe spaces and how that makes them weak or they're not gonna be able to handle the difficulties of life. And on the one hand, I can be open to hearing some of the points people are making. I also don't think older generations really ever had what they needed to handle the difficulties of life. And I also think it's a very common thing for one generation you know, for many generations to judge other generations, whether that's older generations judging younger generations, younger generations then turning around and judging older generations. And I just don't think that's helpful. But I do wonder what would be different if we change the conversation from the pain has to be bad enough for it to be validated to say, I believe you, this is painful. I get it. Like if we could create the kind of culture where people didn't have to compete to have their pain heard, what would shift? And so I think instead of having to be like, you know, yes, you meet the diagnostic criteria for PTSD, which can be important to know. But sometimes we also need to just be able to have conversations where we can say, if you have these emotions, it's okay with me for you to feel those things. Obviously, not in a way that's harmful, but in a way that says, I honor you, I believe you, I believe as you are feeling what's coming up for you, you will find the language and the ways you need to express these emotions. And I trust that you'll find the wisdom within you to know what you need to do, what is going to be best for you in a way that you can move through and then imagine what comes next. And I'll just say it never stops amazing me how providing a safe space for clients to come and talk and be listened to, have their thoughts reflected back to them and validated, their language comes and their path to healing begins to become clear for them and for me. But instead, when I watch the news or reels or TikTok, And I see the divisiveness. I think what is happening is the divisiveness leads to emotional intensity and division around us. And we tend to get stuck on wanting to be seen and understood. And we want our pain to be valid. And the truth is, pain is valid, full stop. And surprising for a lot of people, what comes next can be anger. And I don't think our culture does well with anger either. And yes, in disembodied cultures, anger can be very destructive. And anger that comes from a place of not knowing or understanding the stories that we're actually angry about, that anger can come out sideways. Anger can be projected and deflected onto issues that are not at the source of the anger. However, if anger is coming from feeling the story your body holds and allowing yourself to feel what was, what wasn't, anger can be a step towards self-empowerment. It can be a step in the direction of self-advocacy. And I think the desire for quick solutions and pretty solutions just are not helpful in an overwhelmingly complex world. Grief is messy. Many emotions are messy. And they aren't pretty, but they are necessary. And I get wanting a quick solution. But from my own experience, opening up to the grief and the deep sorrow and pain opened me up to the grief and the pain and the sorrow of another wound that was in my system. And it also opened me up to feeling joy and seeing beauty, to feeling connection and not guarding against love. And this is why I think pacing is so important Because human beings don't heal on a one and done basis. And when we allow the healing to be complex, the healing is transformational. And we begin to accept that as fragile as we are as human beings, that same fragility is what opens us up to connection and love, both being loved and giving love. It allows us to be more humane in every day to both those we know and those we don't know, maybe even with people we don't agree with. I think so often, particularly in our pain, which is so valid, we miss it. We miss the invitations and the opportunities to be and to connect with what is good in me, in others, in our world. And in a way healing means we begin to sink into that reality and we see it more clearly we see the pain and we see the beauty and we're better able to access both now almost 2 years ago so we're in 2023 so it was later in 2021 maybe march i have been looking for a different certification and training process for trauma work and you know and i think it was in 2011 that i got trained in emdr And I think that there are some amazing EMDR clinicians out there. I have some concerns with how the training of EMDR therapists can go. And I understand it on one level. Like if you're teaching a modality, you can't really go into the whole theory. I mean, you could, but I don't know how many people would pay because there would be a lot of modules that you're having to train in. And so as EMDR became more well-known in the general population and more therapists understood that clients were looking for EMDR therapists, I think a lot of therapists who were not trauma-informed and maybe hadn't even done their own work took the EMDR training and became EMDR clinicians. And from what I see with clients who come, I think there is some harm that is being done by EMDR trained clinicians who are not trauma-informed. Again, I know some amazing EMDR clinicians, but it just had me looking for maybe a different modality to add to my skills and my certifications. And you know, several years ago, I had an employee who was working with me and I was doing his licensure supervision And he was getting trained in lifespan integration. And so he would share, you know, as we were staffing cases and doing what we needed to for supervision, you know, he would share some things from lifespan integration. And, you know, after some time working um, for me, he left and went to a couple of different jobs and a couple of years went by. And, you know, me and the team who was working with me were like, we miss him. And I reached out and was, you know, just initiated a conversation saying, hey, what can I do to recruit you to come back and work with us again? And gratefully, he did. And so when he came back, I was asking him some more about his lifespan integration training and certification. And you know several other therapists at my clinic were also contemplating, thinking about getting trained in lifespan integration. And so again, many of us started that process in 2021. So there's uh, four training phases. And then once you've completed that, then it's a year of certification. So I'm in the year of certification process now. And Lifespan Integration was founded by Peggy Pace. And one of the things that Peggy writes is, quote, the neuroscience literature, which had emerged in the 1990s, state that neural integration occurs during child development from about age two through age five via the co-construction of the autobiographical narrative usually between parent and child. Peggy Pace continues, I learned that the human body mind is a self-organizing system, which continues to reorganize itself throughout the lifetime. The human body mind is a complex self-organizing system, which, like all self-organizing systems, follows certain rules. Self-organizing systems spontaneously reorganize under certain conditions. Reorganization of a self-organizing system is not a process of building one layer upon another, but rather requires the system to come apart and restructure. This happens discreetly. Healing requires that we move our clients out of homeostasis just long enough for their self-systems to reorganize. She talks about Hebb's rule, which is neurons that fire together, wire together. And she talks about how repetitions of the autobiographical life narrative can serve to push the client's self-system through more and more state shifts, eventually pushing the system to reorganize itself into a more stable and coherent structure with a more efficient level of functioning. Alan Shore tells us that, quote, the stability of a system is dependent upon its capacity to transition between and thereby exist within a range of possible states, end quote. So again, when we're talking about the window of tolerance, we're able to engage, we're adaptive, we can exist within a range of possible states. Now attachment studies show a strong correlation between one's ability to form attachments, and the coherence of one's life narrative. Now, as we know, and this information is making its way into the consciousness of the general population, all traumas are remembered by the body, but it's rare to have an explicit memory of events which occurred before age two. So when working with clients with histories of complex trauma, therapists often walk a fine line It's necessary to lead clients through their traumatic life narratives, activating enough neural networks to bring about integration or reorganization, and yet do this while maintaining clients in their window of tolerance. I recently had an experience with a client who was able to get to that place of himself saying, okay, so here's what I know about my life and to go through kind of this life narrative. And this was done with emotions and activation. I didn't sense that he was out of his window of tolerance, but there was a lot of emotion that came up and there were tears that were shed. And, you know, I kind of saw him kind of take a deep breath after he was going through his life narrative. And he said, I've never said these things out loud because I always thought it would be too hard. But he said, saying it, and talking about it right now didn't seem so difficult. And he said, I feel like saying it out loud gave me some space from it. And that space is between what happened to him and who he is. Journeys through the life narrative always bring up both the explicit and implicit or our body memories. We know when too many memories are activated, clients will go out of their window of tolerance. They can go into fight, flight, freeze. And if this happens, healing and integration cannot occur. Alice Miller in the book, The Drama of the Gifted Child says, quote, an adult can be fully aware of his feelings only if he had caring parents or caregivers. People who were abused or neglected in childhood are missing this capacity and are therefore never overtaken by unexpected emotions. They will admit only those feelings that are accepted and approved by their inner censor, who is their parent's heir. Depression and a sense of inner emptiness are the price they must pay for this control. The true self cannot communicate because it has remained unconscious and therefore undeveloped in its inner prison. The company of a prison warden does not encourage lively development. It is only after it is liberated and the self begins to be articulate to grow and to develop its creativity, where there had been only fearful emptiness or equally frightening, grandiose fantasies, an unexpected wealth of vitality is now discovered. This is not a homecoming since this home has never existed. It is the creation of a home," end quote. Dan Siegel says, quote, the capacity of the mind to create such a global map of the self across time and various contexts To have auto-noetic consciousness is an essential feature of integration that may continue to develop throughout life. So seeing yourself at three and then seeing yourself at 10 or 12, 15, 17, 21, 25, 30, and seeing that we're the same person and we aren't. Our story and our experiences are having an impact. And going back and reexamining the experiences and the events and their impact and seeing them while we're in a safe place with a safe person can create insight and understanding we didn't have or couldn't have at those previous times. That understanding allows us to reclaim or own those parts of ourselves that previously were disintegrated. Or compartmentalized. Siegel goes on to say, quote, integration is not a function of the self, it is what the self is, end quote. The Gabor Mate talks about two fundamental needs that humans have. The first is attachment, which is the closeness in proximity to another human being for the sake of being looked after or for the sake of looking after the other. Now sometimes we can see that with a parent-child because you know, infants, toddlers, children are quite dependent and helpless on their own and would not survive without somebody else looking after them. But that doesn't end because we become adults or we become more self-sufficient. It can look differently. I also think sometimes we emphasize the importance of Attaching to and caring for another. And we don't necessarily talk about the importance of us, the impact on us of being cared for, looked after, or looking after another, right? We can see that as a parent, it's very vitally important for a child to be looked after. What I didn't realize as a parent is how healing and how it reorganized me as a person to also attach and look after one of my children. And again, like I said, it doesn't end in adult relationships. If it didn't go well as a child, though, it is going to cause some difficulties in our adult relationships as well. Gabor says, human beings as mammals, as well as birds, are creatures of attachment. We have to connect attach or we do not survive again we can think of this in the term of an infant or a young child and we understand physically how that's so true we would not survive but it is also still true in adulthood attachment is not a negotiable need the second fundamental need he talks about is authenticity or being able to connect to ourselves to develop and connect to our wants and needs Now, sometimes this might seem like less of a fundamental need, but as Gabor explains, when we are disconnected from our body and we start to use our intellect over our gut instincts or the responses and sensations that come from the body, we also are not going to survive. So authenticity is also not a negotiable need. But what happens when our need for authenticity threatens our attachments? So he gives an example of a two-year-old girl who wants a cookie and it's close to dinner. And so mom says no. Well, two-year-olds don't have a concept of close to dinner. They don't have a concept of time. They only know they want a cookie. And mom says no. And so they get upset. They get angry. They throw themselves on the floor. They kick and scream. And if mom was raised in a home where one of her parents was a rager, maybe there was violence, maybe there was abuse, She doesn't know what to do with the anger of her child because she hasn't worked on her own emotions. And so she detaches, she punishes, she might withdraw. And in her mind, again, the parent's not trying to hurt the child, but in her mind, she's thinking, well, I will teach my daughter that angry girls don't get cookies. When in fact, what the child learns is angry girls don't get love. They don't get connection. They don't get attachment. So when our authenticity, as underdeveloped and immature as it may be like a two-year-old, when our authenticity threatens attachment, we will suppress our authenticity and opt for attachment every time. This is also how we begin to lose connection to ourselves. And we can even develop the belief that I can't be authentic and in close relationships because to stay authentic Is going to threaten my attachment, we learn to start conforming. And after years of conforming to what our attachment figures have asked or required from us, we can start to begin to wonder who even am I? And whose life am I living? Healing happens with the reconnection to our authenticity. Now, Gabor talks about how trauma isn't something that happens to us, Maybe we grow up in a home where there's an alcoholic parent or a raging parent. Maybe there's violence or abuse, neglect. Maybe we were parentified or there was a meshment. These things are traumatic, but he says the trauma isn't what happens to us. Trauma is what happens inside of us. And when trauma happens inside of us, we begin to disconnect from our emotions. We disconnect from our body. We can have difficulty being present. We may develop a negative view of the world, we can develop a negative view of ourself, and we typically develop a defensive view of other people. When we begin to recognize the manifestations of what happened in the past and see them showing up in our present, we can begin to reconnect with ourself, with our body, and with the emotions we had to lose and this is what begins to move us into recovery. Gabor asked the question, what does it mean to recover something? Well, it means to find it again. So in this process, what are we recovering? We're recovering ourselves. And he says, the loss of self is the essence of trauma. Ram Das said, quote, we're all just walking each other home, end quote. I think he was talking about coming home inside ourselves. He was talking about finding our wholeness, knowing who we are at the deepest and most profound levels of our being and building our lives upon that foundation. And he was talking about how this process is a relational process. We need each other. We cannot do this on our own. Now at the end of this episode, my hope is that you and I can stay open. We can keep going we can keep growing, and we can find that place and those places where we are at home, where we belong, where we can grow and develop and be who we are. Because when we have that in us, it goes with us, it moves with us, and it becomes our primary connection between us and the rest of the world. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.